Well, uh, it's so good to be able to uh, be able to dive into God's word together, um, and we're going to be in Revelation chapter two uh, this evening. And um, as we get ready, we're we're starting a new series called Letters, looking at the uh, letters to the seven churches. Um, in Revelation from Jesus. And so uh, as you're turning there uh, to Revelation 2, uh, verse 1 through 7, uh, my question for you, just for us to wrestle with, have you ever done the right thing, the thing that you knew was right, but you'd done it without, with the wrong heart? You ever had a moment in which you knew the right thing to do, and you knew that it, it was important, you knew it was right, and, but inside your heart you did it with frustration, uh, bitterness, um, anger, um, resentment. Um, have you ever done that? Because I haven't, so I don't know what to talk about. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, we've, it's something where we've all done that, right? We've all had those moments where we knew what we're supposed to do. So this could be something um, as simple as knowing that you should um, you know, clean up dishes and do your chores when you're growing up and just saying, okay, I know I'm supposed to do chores. I remember when I was young, um, probably, you know, middle school, because I was, you know, middle school boy, um, and I remember at my mom's house, uh, we would, you know, there'd be chores to do, and one of them was dishes, and I just remember telling my mom flat out, you know, hey, you know, like, I, I want to help, but, um, you know, I'm just, I'm just never going to do dishes, like, that's just not going to be the thing that I do. Um, can anyone, either here with us or watching online, can anyone guess the number one thing I do at our home every single night and after every single meal, doing the dishes. That's just one of those where that's, I thought, you know, 20 years ago that I was never uh, going to do dishes, but that became one of the ways that the acts of service of just saying, okay, this is a way that I know, but we can do the right things, whether it's chores, whether it's husbands and wives remembering anniversaries. Sometimes we can go all out and we can remember things and we could plan and we can make this great time. Other times it could be something that, you know, we know the right thing is to get a card or to get flowers or get chocolates or whatever it is, but maybe we do it only kind of halfway. I'm like, hey, I remembered. Um, but then that doesn't always reflect how much um, that we love the person because we got distracted or we're not, you know, paying attention as much as we should. Maybe it's with our kids in this season in which we're, we're navigating homeschooling or navigating what it looks like to do school as well as everything else on our plates. And so we're, we know that we're supposed to be doing work with our kids and we have the checkbox of the different items that need to be done. But instead of really investing and in trying to make sure that, that we're helping them learn and they're receiving it, it becomes something where we kind of just go through the motions. And if you're like me, there are times in which you know you want to spend time with those you love, but it is so easy to say, hey, I'm sitting here with my daughters, um, you know, reading a book. But what's really happening is, is as we're reading a book, I'm also distracted and reading something about sports or reading something next to it. It's, it's I could do the right thing. We could do the right things. But if doing the right things without love is the wrong thing. Now, let me be clear. It does, does that mean that we only do things if we're feeling good about, you know, I feel loving towards someone? No, but the idea of, th there are times when, because love is a choice, because love is not just a feeling, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an act of volition, it's an act of the will, it's choosing to love even when things are difficult, we, would, we can still choose to love, still choose to do the right things, 
even when we don't feel like it, we don't want to, or we'd rather be doing something else. Doing the right things without love is the wrong thing. That's our main point for this weekend's service. And so here's why we're talking about that, is we're going to take some, some time to do a little bit of background to uh, the revel- revelation uh, two and three, the different letters to the different churches. We're going to give some general background there. But then we're also going to take some time to dive into the church of Ephesus as a church of people who did a lot of really good things, but they did it without love and how Jesus responds in that. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the fact that you are here with us. And we thank you for your word that is living and active. And that we know that we can read something that was written thousands of years ago. And it can hit our hearts or pierce our souls, God. And so as we are thinking about times where we've done good things, but God, good things with the bad attitude or the wrong attitude is is not the right thing. So I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us, encourage us, challenge us, convict us, and speak to us in a clear way. God, may I decrease, may you increase, and may you speak in a powerful, personal, impactful way to each and every one of us through the power of your word and the presence of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we mentioned, we're going to be in Revelations 2. And so in Revelations 2 and 3, uh, we see Jesus writing letters through John. So John was, you know, the the disciple that that Jesus loved, one of his inner core. John is currently, this is written um, about several decades after Jesus's death, about five, six decades after his death. And so John now, at this point, Jesus is one of his very best friends, the one that the disciple, excuse me, the disciple that Jesus loved, is now on an island and he receives this vision. And in this vision, there are these seven different churches. There's several things in Revelation, and we're not going to get into all those things right now. But um, there are these seven churches that are described. And so um, what I want to do right off the bat and see here is that there are different ways to interpret the letters to the seven churches. There are different ways to interpret it. Because... um, you know, you can look at it, and there's different things. And so inside um, the next slide, we'll say that they may represent different, three different things. One is that they may represent different ages in church history. One of the ways that some commentators or interpreters look at this is say that, you know, it go, there's a progression. That when you start with Ephesus, it's that they lost their first love. And by the time you get to Laodicea, which is the final church, Ephesus is the first. Uh, this, the seventh church is Laodicea. By the time you get there... They would argue that it shows the progression that in the early part of church history, people lost their first love. And then the next part of church history, they experience the thing that Smyrna experiences. And they keep going all the way down until they get to lukewarm. And so they talk about how th- there's ages in church history. That's one way to interpret it, that it shows all the churches across time. Another way to look at it is that there's different types of churches. That there are some churches that are able to, you know what, they just... They're, they're great churches, but they just, they, they lose their first love. That's what the problem is. Or there are some churches who just become really lukewarm. Or there are some churches that, you know, don't give, or they start giving into false teachings, and so they don't flee from it. So it's more like a representative of types of churches. That's one other way that interpreters would tend to look at this or can look at this. But the third way, and the way that, that I will be presenting things as we um, go through our series uh, for the next several weeks, is the idea that these are actual historical local churches that Jesus had a message for. 
that, that it's not just representative. And yes, we will learn lessons from these churches, but it's not something where it's just, oh, it's, it's um, uh, more like a parable or it's more like a story to represent things. No, no, no. I believe that this was written to these churches, that Jesus had a message for each of these seven churches, that he spoke through a, a vision to John, and that we are going to learn because all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is good for us to be able to, for reproof and correction and teaching. And so we learn what God has for us through the scripture. So with that said, we just finished a series called Anthem of Hope. And Anthem of Hope, um, you know, even when we first talked about this series, just to see how God used it has just been so encouraging. We all need hope in this season. And there's a, a famous quotation by um, a pastor, Bill Hybels, and his quotation is this idea that the local church is the hope of the world. What he means by that is that the local church being called to do the ministry that God has called them to do, that through the power of the Holy Spirit, the fact that Jesus says that, you know, I will be with you even to the end of the age, that we are to love God first, that we are to um, love other people as we love our neighbors, and then to fulfill, which are the greatest commandments, and then to fulfill the great commission of being able to make disciples of all nations to go and to baptize and to teach them to obey everything Jesus commanded that by doing these things, that we are fulfilling the mission of the church. And in so doing, when the church, when God's people, through the power of the Holy Spirit and the boldness of being able to share our faith, when we are able to then go and spread the good news of the gospel to those around us, that that is what will bring hope to a dying world that the local church is the hope of the world. So we're, we're going to be looking at these ideas as these are local, historical, local churches that Jesus had a message for that we can learn from. So we, as a local church in Poway in San Diego County, will be able to fulfill the mission that God has for us as well. So what messages might Jesus have for us? And specifically, what might he want to teach us through Ephesus? Now, Ephesus, uh, one of the points on the screen is that Ephesus... Uh, was an important church in an important city. To give some context, uh, Ephesus was the fourth largest church at the time, which would equate to, um, it was 250,000 people. It was the fourth largest uh, city at the time, excuse me, not church, fourth largest city at the time, um, which would be equivalent to Houston, Texas uh, in the United States. And so usually when I think of Houston, um, I just think of like, the Rockets, who as a Warriors fan, I'm not a huge fan of them. And I think of the Astros, and as a baseball fan, I'm not a huge fan of them either. Uh, but, uh, you know, you start to think about Houston as, you know, I hear it's got great food. I hear it's great. But that's the idea. It's the fourth largest. When you start to think in size or in comparison, Ephesus was the fourth largest as well. There's a commercial uh, and a trade center. Um, so it was, you know, a lot of trade was going through there. A lot of money was through there. It was very prosperous. It was very magnificent. Um, in fact, it had um, a famous library. And it was also home to one of the seven ancient wonders of the ancient world, uh, which was the Temple of Artemis or the Temple of Diana, but whether you use the, the Greek or the Roman uh, goddess name there. So Temple to Artemis or Diana. It was, it was huge and it was well known. And so this was a big, important city in the ancient world. And the church of Ephesus was an important church in the midst of that. That we see that Paul preached there um, into the theater, which sat 25,000 people during his second missionary journey. You can read that in Acts chapter 18, verse 19 through 21. 
We see people about Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos uh, were people who served there. In fact, we saw that um, Timothy was, the, was released to be the pastor there and that John, who's writing this letter through the vision through Jesus, was a pastor there as, wo- as well. So this is a, a church that has a lot of impact. So it was an important church in an important city. And it has an important message for us because in her notes, Ephesus was doing some incredible things as a church. So let's take, let's read verse one, uh, one through three, excuse me, as we start to see some of the things that were incredible that Jesus is saying, Ephesus, you are doing awesome stuff. Here's what he says. Revelation two, verse one, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. One of the things you'll need to know about Revelation um, is the idea that there's a lot of uh, language that is figurative in the sense of it means something else. And it's not, not just a literal reading of it. You don't always just see the exact literal understanding. So we may right off the bat, verse two, wonder what are the lampstands? What are the stars? What are those about? And What's great is that the context is put right before this in just a couple verses earlier at the very end of uh, chapter one. It says that the seven, uh, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand, again, this is Jesus speaking, and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels or messengers of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the, are the seven churches. So right away, Jesus is saying, I'm the one who holds, I'm walking amongst my churches. I'm present amongst the lampstands, amongst the churches across the world. And I hold the messengers in my hand. And this word messenger can be, the word angel can be translated messenger originally. That can mean an actual angel can also mean uh, the messenger of the church or the, the pastor of the church is another way to look at it. But either way, the point is Jesus is, it is present amongst the golden lampstands. He's present amongst the churches. And so verse two continues on. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot, cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and you have not grown weary. They were doing some incredible things. That these are wonderful, wonderful commendations, ways that he's commending them for how they are as a church. In fact, really briefly, there are seven. Uh, we're not, they're not on the screen, but just so you can be aware of. He commends them for their works, their actual deeds that they're doing. The labor or the toil, the, the, how much, how hard they are working. He mentions about their endurance, how they're able to withstand difficulty and trials. Mentions about how they don't bear those who are evil. They're not ones who have been, um, you know, overwhelmed by the, by the world, but they're, they're not being conformed to the pattern of the world. Rather, they are holding firm in who Jesus is. They've tested the apostles. They want to make sure that the teaching is accurate, which is something that is so vitally important then, now, and always. At 1 John 4, talks about the importance of testing the spirits testing the word, testing the apostles to say, is this true? Because what we don't want are people who are in positions of teaching to start veering off where the word of God is calling and what the word of God says. And so he's saying, Jesus is saying, Ephesus, you have done a great job. You know your word. You're testing people. You're making sure that the apostolic teaching is accurate, is biblical, is correct. He talks about how that they would bear, that he commends them for bearing his name well. 
how many of us in, in some of our difficult times, maybe we want to do good things, but if we don't do it with love, it ends up besmirching or, or l- causing people to look down on our witness. That we say we want to f- witness to Christ, but if we say that in one breath and then we lack integrity or we cheat at school or at work or we start to do things that break honor with God, if we start to do that, then we say we want to do good things, but it can be smirched or it can tear down the testimony. We're not, we may not always represent him as well as we want. And then lastly, it talks about how they have not grown weary. And I think for a lot of us, this is a season in which it's really easy to grow weary. Jesus is saying, Ephesus, you are doing all of these wonderful things. You're doing all these things that are great. And so if this ended there, we must have just thought, man, Ephesus was an incredible church. And we could think of incredible churches doing incredible things. Our church does incredible things both locally and globally and has community and being plugged in to the people and the purpose of the church, to be changed by God, to change the world, to be called to witness both through our words, through evangelism, as well as through our actions, through service. I mean, our church does incredible things. And we might be able to say, yeah, Ephesus, you guys are awesome and we're so excited to read about you. Oh, that's so great. But we all know that one of the uh, most difficult words when you hear something like, have you ever had a job review? When someone starts to review you and they say, here are some great things that you've done. You've done this, you've done that, you've done that. What's the, what's the word that you're waiting for but you don't want to hear? But, but, you're also the worst. In the, no, you know, but, but this idea of this, but here's what I, what I need to tell you. And that's hard to hear, right? But, but sometimes we're not willing to listen to that negative without being uplifted with the positive first. So, so Jesus is saying, here's some great things you're doing. But, or, or in the NIV, he says, yet, here's what I have against you. Verse 4. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. See, they were doing so many right things, but doing r- the right things without love is the wrong thing. He says, you, however, these incredible things were done without the most important thing, which is love. We can have our checkbox of doing the right things as Christians. We, we can wake up and have a quiet time and pray. We can spend time in a small group. We can serve here at a church or we can serve out in the community. We can share our faith with people. We can worship God and lift up our hands. But if we're only doing those as rote activities, as, as just things that engage not our hearts, but we're just doing it because we know it's the right thing to do, then there are chances that we might have lost our first love. Now, the word for first in this is the word proto, which is kind of where you get prototype, like the original. So it can refer to the idea of it's your original love. So it can refer to the first as in original, as in um, you know, uh, what am I thinking of? Like timelines, like in sequence. It was the first love. For many of you who grew up in the church, learning to love God may have been a first love. It's something that you just learned from the very beginning of your life and you were raised in that and praise God that you're walking in that. For others, 
it's the idea of when you first became a Christian that that, that was right away, you just, it changed how you lived. You started doing things differently, seeing the world differently, changing your habits and doing things in such a way that would honor God because that was your first love. Because once you realize how much Jesus loves you, how much he gave up for you, the power of the gospel and the power to conquer sin through the power of Jesus and the fact that he took our sin and we who knew no, or he who knew no sin became sin so that we might be the righteousness of God and recognizing that grace is not something that you earn, but it's something that we receive as a free gift. All of a sudden, when that becomes real to us, we automatically know that we want to worship this God, follow this God, and change our lives to honor this God. So there's that proto, this idea of the first love, but it can also mean proto as, or as in first, as in your priorities now. Maybe it's this idea that you, you still love God, but is he third or fourth on your list? Is it the idea that, yes, I still read my Bible, but I no longer, you know, do it with the gusto and joy of actually hearing from him, I do it so that I can tell my friends that I read the Bible this week. I do it so that my Bible app shows a streak that is bumping up so that I've opened the Bible for however many days. But how many times have I opened up my hearts to hear what God has to say to me through the Bible? Is it possible that this verse is one of the most difficult verses of, of using the word but or yet because it's you doing right things, but yet you have lost your first love. The, the love that sparked in you when you found out who Jesus was and the love that sparked in you when you realized how much he loved you. See, we recognize that doing things that he says that they're doing good things for God without truly loving God. Pete Scazzaro puts it this way. But works for God that is not nourished by a deep interior life with God will eventually be contaminated by other things such as ego, power, needing approval of and from others, and buying into the wrong ideas of success and the mistaken belief that we can't fail. That when we think that our goodness or our rightness in front of God is based on our ability to do the good things, then all of a sudden we might fall into the temptation that Ephesus did, that many others have, to do the right things without love. Because we think that it's in our actions only that we receive love from God, when really it's right action plus right love and right relationship with him. So this is one of the saddest and, and, and most convicting verses in the Bible. That we can be doing all incredible things and missing out on our first love. That I remember when I first became a Christian, I remember that I would wake up at the same time every morning. And I would have this prayer list that I would go through. And I would like kneel on the side of the bed and I would pray and it would like almost consistently be exactly 29 minutes of prayer. I, I don't know why, uh, but you know, it was just, I would just go through the list and it was like, all right, look, I'm, I'm praying for this, I'm praying for that, I'm praying for them, I'm praying for him, for her. And all of a sudden it's, you know, 29 minutes later. I remember how it would, some of my roommates would, would try to tempt me with different things and would try to like create this like frustration. And you know, they would write to me or they would say things like, you know, you're so different now. And they said that with like a, like a, a snide remark. 
and that hurt. But then on the flip side, you think, yeah, I am. I'm different now. That's what God does in our lives. The power of the Holy Spirit cleans us out. He's our guide. He's our comforter. He convicts us and draws us to become more like Christ. So even though we can be doing right things, if we do it without love, it's the wrong thing. How do we know it's the wrong thing? Let's see Jesus' response in verses 5 through 7 as we close out. And, and the idea is how is it that we can regain, regaining our first love? What are some of the steps that Jesus says right here, verses 5 through 7? Verse 5 says this, Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. And if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. What are the things, there's just three quick things, especially in verse 5, that Jesus says, here's how you regain your first love. The first one is remember. In our NIV version right here, it says consider. Consider how far you've fallen. That you consider where we once were in your walk with God. And the love that was just this burning, this glowing ember that drove everything you did. Remember that. Don't don't just remember what you did, but remember how you felt. It's the idea of going back and, you know, Steph and I, we have like different um, memory things that we have, like we have a memory box. And, you know, recently I found like uh, a journal that like we would like write notes to uh, to one another. And I've decided to spare you reading those um, here this tonight. Um, But, you know, just being able to read things from the, and it's like, being able to hear, like I, I would, I like when I first asked her uh, to be my girlfriend, like I wrote poetry to her, um, and so it's just one of those things where it's like, you know, I remember those things, and and I still, of course, I still love her, and it's like, well, why don't I write poetry, right? Why don't I do that anymore? But you read those things, and it doesn't just say, oh, okay, then I must just start writing her poetry again, right? Like, like it's not just let me go, just go do that. It's remembering the love so that when that happens, it has all that impact, it has all that power, it, ha- it brings about all those emotions. It's remember, re- remember how far you've fallen. And so this is, a, this is almost the negative side of it first. It says, oh my gosh, I once was here with my love for God and, and I'm here and remember how different that is now. Consider how much that's changed. And when you've remember, when you've considered that, what's the next thing you do? He says, repent. Repent. The reason I know that doing the right things without love is the wrong thing is that Jesus says, Ephesus, you've done the right things. You're doing it without love. Repent because it's wrong. Repent because it's the wrong thing. And, and again, this, the importance for us is the idea of Repenting is a 180-degree turn that in the same way that many of us changed our lives and our habits and the things that we did when we had our first love, our proto-agape, our first love, when we first did that, we changed how we lived. And now it's saying, but slowly we've either continued in what we've done, but we've lost the love with it, or we've fallen back into some of the old ways we used to live. And so it's saying, 
repent. And repent is just that word. It just means a complete 180 degree turn. It's you're going in one direction and you're literally going to stop. You're going to turn around and walk back into the direction of God. It's flipping a U-turn when you realize you've made the wrong choice. And you're going the wrong direction on the street and you turn right around right away. You don't just keep going and hope, wow, I really missed that turn back there. Hopefully I'll just start getting back to where I need to be. No, you stop. You turn around. You make a U-turn and you head back in the direction you should go. So the call is for us to keep doing these good things, but do them out of love, not obligation or routine or legalism or bitterness or frustration. Remember, doing good things without loving God, according to this passage, is a cause or a, a reason that we need to repent. It's not something to take lightly. Because if the greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, if we're missing that whole love part of the, the dynamic of being a Christian, we're missing the most important part, to love God with everything. And out of the overflow of how we love God with everything, we then love others in such a way that points them to him. Timothy Keller in his book, um, uh, Prodigal God, talks about this, that when it comes to repentance, there are two ways to try to be your own savior and Lord. One is by breaking all the moral laws and setting your own course. That's the idea of the younger son and the prodigal son story, the actual son who ran off. It's breaking all the rules, breaking all this thing, saying, I don't need a, a Lord. I don't need someone to tell me what to do. So I'm going to go off and live the way I want to live. He says that's one way for us to try to become our own Lord. But the other way that we try to become our own Savior is this. And one is by keeping all the moral laws and being very, very good. What does that mean? It means that as the younger son would think, I don't need a, a Lord to tell me what to do. I'm, I'm going to go live the way I want to live. I'm going to break all the rules. The older would son would say, I don't need a savior because I'm already good enough. I do all the right things. But as we see in the prodigal son passage, Luke 15, near the end, it's God saying to the, to the, young, or the father saying to the older son, everything I have is yours. But he was bitter. He was frustrated. He was angry. The, the son was, the older son, not God. But the older son was angry because it wasn't fair. Because he didn't realize he had the availability to have that close relationship with his loving father. And instead, he just wanted the things of his father without the presence and the relationship with his father. So we talk about how, remember, consider where you were. That's how you can regain your first love. The second part is to repent, to turn around, to come back into relationship with God. And the third one is to repeat. What does he say? He says, repent and do the things you did at first. When I uh, became a Christian early on again, I shared how I kind of changed everything right away. And then a few months down the road, I remember just asking someone, she was a student that was a couple years older than me. Um, her and a few other students were just kind of mentors and kind of helping me. I was very, very fresh in my faith. Uh, it was September 20th. I gave my life to the Lord in 2003. It was six weeks later. I felt the call to ministry while attending The Rock in, um, at Montezuma Hall in San Diego State. And it was after that time when I knew I was called to ministry. I knew I was called to follow Jesus, but I just wasn't, you know, I wasn't feeling like the same closeness, the same love. I wasn't sure. And 
my friend Tracy, she just said, listen, the thing, what, it, what did you used to do when you felt closest to God? Well, I woke up early to pray for 29 minutes. I, you know, was part of Bible study. I mean, whatever it was. She says, do them again. Do them now. Do them, repeat them, even if you don't feel like it. That if there's been a, a dynamic in, in, in marriages or relationships in which there's a, a divide and we remember what it was like uh, on wedding days and how excited we were to marry this person. And then for many, but as the years go and the decades grow, all of a sudden there's, you've kind of lost that, that spark or you lost that, you know, I, I've been trying so hard not to say you've lost that loving feeling this entire sermon. I just have to call it out, say it right now, and it'll be out of my system. I'm sorry. Um, you've lost that loving feeling, and, you know, Tom Cruise and the whole thing. Um, but no, it's this idea that you're recognizing that, you know, I don't feel the same way I feel on my wedding day anymore. That, that people feel that way. Well, what did you do when you were pursuing or developing that, that love? You, you spent extra time writing notes or writing poetry. You went out of your way just to hear them on the phone and, and to be able to say, no, you hang up. No, you hang up. And then you just sit there and no one hangs up. You know, you, you would spend a time to drive all the way up just to see them for a moment because that was worth it. What does it look like to repeat that? It's, it's write poetry again. It's, it's, well, you can't really call one another, I guess, during work. You're just like, no, you hang up. You have like the tiniest Bluetooth, like the office. That won't work. Um, but just this idea of saying, you know, we have, to, we have to, what are the things that we've done before that we need to do again? And even if we don't feel it right now, we do those things so that through the activity that once sparked the love in the past, by renewing and repeating those activities now, it can re-spark the love in the present. Remember, consider where you once were, repent and turn around and change, repeat the things you did once before, even if you don't feel like it right now. So what does that mean for us? It means wake up early and be in the word. It means pray, but not just going through a list, but maybe have your list and then listen as a response. It means going to the scripture and not just trying to read a chapter a day to cross off a box that you have inside your checklist to get a good grade on being a Christian. It's, it's hearing God speak through his word. It's renewing and going slowly and saying, God, what do you want to speak to me in this passage? What do you want to show me in this passage? It's being in and setting time aside for either attending church in large gatherings, attending small groups, being a part of that. It's setting aside a time to be in community. It's setting aside a time to be to listen to worship songs and not always just the songs that are going around that we hear all the time. It's, it's doing these things that sparked our love in the past, knowing that by doing those same activities now, it can re-spark our love in the present. So as we close, it's the, I, the question I have is for all of us. This is not a question that, honestly, maybe some of you, you can say it right away. I think for some of us, we're going to have to bring this question to the Lord in our quiet time, whether you journal, uh, whether you, you pray, whether you go on a walk and you pray, whether you just listen. Say, God, have I lost my first love? God, reveal to me if I'm just going about the motions of following you but my heart isn't after you. A am I doing these things? Am I working? Do I have good deeds? Am I toiling hard? Am I testing this, uh, the apostles? Am I, 
not bearing those who are evil? Am I bearing your name well, Jesus? Am I not growing weary? But am I doing all those good things, but am I still not doing it out of love? It's an easy question to ask. It's an easy question to think about for the closing two minutes of a sermon. It's a lot harder to wrestle with God with that. Because as we see in this passage, if we ask that question, Jesus will answer. And it might not be what we want to hear. But we want to hear whatever it takes for us to draw closer to him once again. That many of us have found a love that we've prioritized over him. Just look around the world. There's numerous different things or people or whatever it may be that we could turn to and say, that's what we love first. We don't have physical idols anymore, like wooden sculptures or things cut from stone, but the idolatry around our world is more prevalent and more subversive than ever, which means that we constantly need to remind ourselves or ask God to remind us to never lose our first love. To choose intentionally to do good things, but not out of obligation or bitterness or frustration, but to do it recognizing the power of the gospel. That thinking about the moment in our lives, the gospel became real. So I want you to close your eyes for a moment, wherever you are. I want you to think about the first time the gospel, the power of God's love by sending Jesus to live a perfect life and die a horrible death and be raised to new life. I want you to think about the moment that became real to you. I want you to think about who else was there with you. What were you doing? Were you at a church? Were you at a youth camp? Was it a conversation with a friend over coffee? Was it a classmate who spoke truth into you? I want you to think about how did it make you feel to know that God loves you that much? Is that something that you just said, oh, that's interesting, and you put it back and had your other priorities that you put ahead now? Or did that radically change your life? And I want you to consider that feeling, that emotion, that closeness to God, that love that overflowed so fully out of you at that time. Is that still the love you have for God now? Or is there a chance that me, you, we need to remember, repent, and repeat so we could come back to the right relationship with God that's filled with love and not, obe- or not um, excuse me, um, obligation. Because doing the good things without love is still the wrong thing. Father, we thank you that you are here with us. Lord, I pray that there may be some people who are with us here or watching online that, God, that moment of thinking back about the power of the gospel in our lives is so moving to us and it's difficult and it's sad for us to think how much has changed, God. For that, we repent and we come back to you. There's some of us who 
we can say in all honesty, yes, like that love is still fervent and it is still powerful. God, we praise you for that and pray that we would not grow weary in doing good, that we would not grow weary in pursuing you, but that we would continue to do so in a way that honors you. There are some of us, Lord, that may never have felt that power before or your presence before. We've, we've heard about you, but what you did on the cross, what you are still doing in our lives is something that is, we've just put back on the back burner of our priorities and therefore we've not made it the center of our lives. God, I pray that you would speak to each of us now, however you need to speak. Help us to wrestle with this throughout the week, however you need us to wrestle with it. And God, I pray that as we enter into a time of communion now, that we would take the bread and we would take the cup that reminds us of your broken body, that we would remember your sacrifice, Jesus, that we would repent of our sins, and that we would repeat the process of remembering and repenting any time we sin, and that we would repeat our full, wholehearted pursuit of you, even when we don't always feel it. May we do it so that we can regain and remember our first love in you. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.